0: Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and we have been talking and will continue to talk this week and next about establishing a strong church. We've been through a lot of different churches in the New Testament now, and uh, there's a lot that we can learn from them. We are still in the process of establishing a church. Our third anniversary is this Sunday, and so we still have uh, I don't know when you can say you finally established a church, but we're still trying to establish a church that is glorifying to God. And so uh, we've been looking in the Bible at all the different churches um, and looking at the strengths of those churches and the weaknesses of the churches. We want to emulate the strengths. We want to be careful for the weaknesses. We want to make sure that we are uh, doing things that are going to be pleasing to God versus things that God obviously condemns from all of these other churches that we see the things that he condemned in the Bible. So we're going to get into the last church this week, and that is the church of Laodicea. And that is in Revelation chapter 3, and we'll pick it up in verse number 14. Let's just go ahead and read all the way through it first, and then we'll talk about it. It says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now this is very interesting. I know that you kind of know the drill now as far as looking for the strengths and the weaknesses of these churches. But if you notice as we went through there, there was no strengths that were mentioned in this church. Now it's, it's very interesting that he says in verse number 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. I mean obviously there was something in that church that had to have something to do with being good or he wouldn't have said that. Um, but I think this is another interesting point, and, and a lot of this we're going to get to next week, but verse number 20, we use verse 20 often to talk to people who, who um, you know, were standing at their door and trying to win them to Jesus Christ, and we say, look, he's standing at your door, he's knocking on your heart's door, open the door, he'll come in, and I think we can use that, but I think that's a secondary, I think that he's talking to a church that supposedly is a Christian church, supposedly is a church that's following him, And he's telling this church, I'm standing at the door, open it so I can come in. Uh, And I think what that has a lot to do with, and like I said, we'll get into this next week, but I think what that has to do with is the fact that God was pushed out of this church. And he's standing at the door saying, let me come in, I want to, you know, I want the Holy Spirit's power to be there, I want to fill you, I want to use this church, but you pushed me out, I'm standing outside the doors and I can't get in. And so this is a very sad, um, I, I would say a sad way to end because we come to the very last and worst of all the seven uh, Asian churches, the exact opposite of the church at Philadelphia that we looked at last week. The church at Philadelphia was, was probably by far the best church out of all of those churches. There was nothing that he condemned in the church at Philadelphia. And then we turn right around and hear this message to Laodicea, and there's nothing that he commends in this one. Um, this was, uh, I've been doing this with all of these, and so I'll go back and do this with this one as well. But this was once a famous city uh, near the river Lycus. It had a wall of, uh, that was just very, very big, three marble theaters. Like Rome, it was built on seven hills. I mean, this was just a beautiful, beautiful city. Laodicea re- got its name from Laodicea. Uh, it looks just like Laodicea without the A on the end, but the wife of Antiochus. He was the second king of Syria. And uh, he rebuilt it, he beautified the city. It seems that Paul was very instrumental in planting the church here in the city of Laodicea. Uh, He mentions in the epistle to the Colossians, the last chapter in that book, Uh, he sends salutations to them. We're not going to take the time to go through all of that stuff, but Laodicea was not more than 20 miles from Colossae, which if you know, uh, know, uh, that was a day's journey. And to them, a day's journey was not that far. I mean, to us, 20 miles is just, you know, most of us probably came 20 miles to come to church tonight, you know? So it wasn't very far away. Um, but we know some things about this after this time period, but it was in this city that they held a council in the fourth century, but it's, it's long since been demolished. It's, it's in ruins today. It's an awful monument, I think, to the, to, the, to the wrath of the Lamb. And that was the message that was sent to this church. Um... Now, you know this, and, and, and I, I have not pointed this out in any of the rest of them, I, I just failed to mention it, but Archippus was probably the angel of this church, and when it says and unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, it's talking about the pastor, unto the angel of the church. He's talking about unto the pastor of this church in, in each one of these. Um, but one commentator I read drew out a very interesting comment. And if you notice, okay, and we'll just take these the three churches that we see in Revelation 3. Look what it says in Revelation 3, 1, about Sardis. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis, right. Verse 7, the message to Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. And then verse 14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right. These things saith. And if you notice in every one of these, you go back to verse 18 of chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira. He mentions it that way in every one of these, until you come to Laodicea. And then he says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Now, I think it's very interesting, and, and the point that this, that this commentator made was that uh, in, in all of these other salutations, he says, unto the angel of the church in in this one, he says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. And the point that the commentator made was, um, it's, it's almost as if he was saying that the Laodiceans were, n- were not part of his church. Uh, they, they were the, not the church in, they were the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, they had their own church, they were, they, they were off on their own, and uh, I don't know if we can say that conclusively or not, but it's, inter- and it's, it's an interesting point nonetheless, because that, that's the only way that that's different. In all of the, in every one of these seven churches, you see that it was to the angel of the church in whatever city. And then this time he says to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Uh, point point taken. I don't know if it's meaning that uh, that this was their church and they didn't have the Holy Spirit's power working in their church, and this was just something that they were doing. I, I have a hard time believing that because of exactly what it says in verse number 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. It wouldn't be his if he was if there was you know you know what I'm saying. Um, he wouldn't be saying, I love you, and I'm going to chasten you because I love you. He doesn't do that for the unsaved. He only does that for the saved. And so, um, I don't know. I have a hard time taking it that far and saying that this was not a Christian church. I believe that it was. But either way, unfortunately, there are no strengths of this church that we can mention. We always take a week to look at the strengths, and we take a week to look at the weaknesses. There are no strengths to look at in this church. And that's a sad commentary about that. There's an abundance of weaknesses, and I want to take a little time to go through that, but we're going to do that next week. What I want to talk to you about tonight is the way that God introduces himself to this church. Um, I was going to try to put it all together in one message, but the more I got to studying it, the more I realized there was a lot there, and it's all found in verse number 14. Um, But there's some interesting things that we can learn by way of introduction into next week. Look what he says in verse number 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. And the first thing I think we can say is this, he is the all-conquering one. We see this in the first part. He says, these things saith the Amen. Now what does that mean? We, we've read through, I mean, I'm sure that you've read through this passage many times, especially because of what he says to the Laodiceans in verse 15. I know thy works, that thou wert, uh, art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. We, we always focus on that part. And there's nothing wrong with focusing on that part. It's a, it's a very pivotal part of what he's saying to this church. But I think many times we just read right over what it says in verse 14. What does it mean to say that he is the amen? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest amen to all man's needs. Now, turn back over to Revelation chapter 1. Here in this passage, that word amen, I am the amen, basically is what he's saying. It's used as a personal name. He refers to himself as... One that is steady and unchangeable in all of His purposes, in all of His promises, in Him, everything is yes or amen or I'm affirming that. Isn't that why we say amen? Right. That is to affirm. I agree with you. That's a- amen. I agree with you. Right. That's why we say amen in church. That's why we, uh, you know, that's why we use amen in, in different situations. Uh, Revelation begins and ends with a double amen. The first double amen has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ as the final ruler of men. And we see that in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 6. And I'm not referring to amen and amen. That would be a double amen. But we see two verses in a row where he ends the verse with amen. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. So there's a double amen. That has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ as the as the final ruler of men. Now, go all the way to the end of Revelation, to Revelation 22. The last double amen has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ as the final revealer of God. So the first one has to do with Jesus Christ as the final ruler of men. The last one has to do with Jesus Christ as the final revealer of God. Verse 20 of Revelation 22. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now with that first amen, God begins the book, gives us a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ as a prophet, as a priest, as a king. Spanning the ages of his comings uh, meeting all the needs of men, able to subdue all things to himself. With the last double amen, what we see happening is, is God closes the book once and for all. That's the end of it. It's over. He has nothing more to say. In other words, what he's saying is in Christ, we have all that we need to know. We have all that we'll ever need in Jesus Christ. Both references refer us to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But I think then we can very easily say he is the all-conquering one. The second thing we see is is back in verse number 14 of chapter 3. Turn back over there. He says, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness. So in the amen, we see that Jesus is everything that we need, but then also that he is the faithful and true witness. First thing we see is that he's the faithful witness. That means that he's not going to dilute the truth. I think, you know, obviously we're to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ, and boy, what a way that we can emulate him is by not diluting the truth. There's a lot of churches that are diluting the truth today. They'll give some of that truth, but they're not going to give all of the truth because they don't want it to be offensive to people. Well, that person might leave if I preach the truth. They might, but you know what? The truth is going to be offensive to people. We don't have to present it in an offensive way, but the truth itself is going to be offensive. And Jesus Christ, as the faithful witness, is someone who is going to tell the truth without diluting the truth. Another commentator suggests that there are three things that are necessary to constitute a true witness. He said this, he must have an eyewitness of what he relates, possess competence to relate what he has seen, and be willing to do so. So what we're talking about here as the faithful and true witness is that he's trustworthy. No matter how severe the condemnation of this church is he is going to give us the truth about this church. Um, he, is, he is a trustworthy, th- this is a trustworthy condemnation. It's faithful and it's true. So he's the faithful witness, but he's also the true witness, which means he's not going to distort the truth. He's not going to dilute it, and he's not going to distort it. He sees through all the sham, through all the shallowness, through all the everything that we have in this church, the outward show that we put on a lot of times, Like, we've been talking about that for the last few weeks. You know, it's just kind of come up in the messages and and, and, uh, in the way that we've looked at some of the verses about that. But there's so much Christianity that is just pretending to be Christianity because of what it looks like on the outside when it's not actually Christianity on the inside. Christianity is not doing. Christianity is being. Christ doesn't want us to do what Christians do. He wants us to be what Christians are. And that's what the faithful and true witness is going to be. He's not going to dilute nor distort what he sees. There's a lot of Christians who spend their lives hiding behind little disguises. Uh, and for those Christians who, who live behind those disguises, this can be a very discomforting truth. Uh, but it is a truth. The eyes of Jesus Christ penetrate those disguises. He strips away the facade, the cover that we try to put in front so many times, and he sees us as we really are. Now, I read a story, apparently to English boys, Richmond Crompton's books, and, and a, they're called the William books. I don't know exactly why. I've not read them, but they have a wide appeal to young boys in England. And one of these stories is called William's Truthful Christmas, and, I, and apparently that's why they're called the William books, because all of these are chronicling the life of a boy named William. Anyway, he's sitting in church listening kind of half-heartedly to one of the messages until something gets his attention. And his imagination is, is just fired up by the challenge that the preacher gave him from the word, cast aside all deceit and hypocrisy and speak the truth in love. So, and I don't know if this is a true story or not. I don't think it is. I think it's a fictional story that's been made up to, to try to present a truth. But he decides that he's going to try this over Christmas. He's going to stop the deceit. He's going to speak the truth in love. And so Williams, he, he the Brown family, that's his family, they're to spend their Christmas with Uncle Frederick and Aunt Emma, and so on Christmas Day William opens up his presents in his bedroom. Apparently that's the way they used to do it. He comes down the stairs. He's uh, the presents are just they're they're just uninspiring. It's a pen and a pencil, a ruler. It's you know uh, a purse, a tie, a brush, a comb, things that you know just boys don't really care to get. Things that maybe he needed, but they're not anything that's exciting for him. And so he goes downstairs and. Emma, uh, uh, Aunt Emma asked him if he likes the stuff that he got. And he's determined that he's going to tell the truth at all costs, no distortion of the truth. And so he says point blank, no, I don't like him. I mean, think about that. Okay, think about this for a minute. How many of us in that situation would have said, oh, yes, I love it? Right? You, you, we do that kind of stuff a lot. Uh, and, and I'm not saying, you know, uh, d- take this with a grain of salt, but, but, uh, but think about this. When it comes to the truth, we distort the truth a lot. You know, something happens and, and uh, you know, oh, that was that was wonderful, that was great, you did a tremendous job on that, knowing in the back of your mind, wow, that was horrible. <laughs> you know, but we distort the truth. A lot of times we do that. And so uh, he decides that he's going to speak the truth and away with the hypocrisy and all of that stuff. And so the atmosphere in that house got a little bit brighter when William gives a present for his aunt and uncle and Emma thanks him for, uh, for being so kind. And William says he's not being kind. He's just, he's giving her a present because his mother said that he had to. So his aunt somewhat, you know, coldly says, well, thank you for the pincushion that you gave me anyway, you know. And, well, then um, William says, I didn't spend any money on it. It didn't cost me anything to give you that gift. And so he said it's been left over from a rummage sale. And his mother gave it to him to give to them as a gift. He's being honest here, right? I think about how many times we do this kind of stuff. But anyway, well, now it's his turn to give his uncle his gift. And so he holds up this leather purse that, that he was given, and he was excited about it. And then, uh, you know, he, he, he said, this is a really useful present. And then William says, well, you know, it's not really that useful, obviously. You know, he said his, his uncle Jim had sent it to William as uh, William's father for his present. But since the catch wouldn't work, his father gave it to William to give it to his uncle. And so, you know, he's, he just decides that he's going to be very honest. And so later on in that day, William's uh, uncle and aunt receive a visit from Lady Atkinson. She's one of the members of the high society and apparently well-connected well and, and even somewhat related to this family. And so she comes and, I mean, it's really with... with uh, a great condescension that she comes to this family you know it's they're not wealthy she is and so she feels that like she has to give them a gift and so she gives them all gifts and the gift that she gave everyone was a picture of herself she passes it out to all these different people in the family and of course she turns to William and she tells him you look at the picture don't you think it looks very much like me William, obviously determined that he was going to tell the truth, looked at this lady and he said, it's not as fat as you are. <laughs> that's, that's according to the book. Anyway, but you know, a lot of people cannot stand to be told the truth. Uh, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Society has invented a lot of ways, a thousand ways, probably more than a thousand ways to conveniently blunt the sharp edge of truth. And that's what this verse is talking about. The Lord Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness. Us, if we were going to the church at Laodicea, most of us probably would have said, boy, everything you're doing here is great. This is wonderful. Look at all the stuff you have. This is is tremendous. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could probably do a little bit better in this area, but look what you're doing. Everything's great here, right? Because we we, we don't like the sharp edge of truth. And Jesus Christ in this passage See's a lukewarm church. He tells the truth about it in an undiluted form, and just the condemnation to this church is very very harsh. But you see what he says there in verse number 19, even that even that harsh truth is softened with love. He says as many as I love I rebuke and chasten; be zealous therefore and repent. But we cannot deny the fact that he is the all-convicting one. And then lastly and quickly, we don't have a lot uh, uh, much left on this. We're going to get out soon tonight, a little sooner than normal. Go back to Revelation 3 and look at verse number 14 there. These things saith the amen. He is the all-conquering one. He is the beginning and the end. He is everything we need. He's the all-convicting one. He is the truth, the, uh, the faithful and true witness. And then he says, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, If you know anything about Mormonism, the Mormons would say that not only is God created, but Jesus is created by God, right? And that verse seems to back that up, the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one that God created first. Is that what that's saying? What is it saying then? Let me explain for just a minute, because there there are some people that would use this verse to teach that Jesus Christ is the creation of God. And we would all say, no, no, no. But how do you explain that verse? The beginning of the creation of God. Now, turn over to John chapter one. There's one verse. And and the only reason I say that, turn over to that passage. Um, To make this verse say that Jesus Christ is the creation of God is to ignore what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. All the rest of it. And it would throw the rest of the Bible into confusion, it would throw the rest of the Bible into contradiction, because there's so much that's said about Jesus Christ, nothing else is said about Jesus Christ being created. And I've told you this many times, but what you have, whenever there is an apparent contradiction in the Bible, that's exactly what it is, is an apparent contradiction. Because the Bible is not going to contradict itself, and if it looks like a contradiction, the reason it looks like a contradiction is because we don't understand it. The way that it was written, or the way that it was intended to be understood. So Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. It says in John chapter 1 and verse 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. No, it doesn't say that, does it? But that's what the Mormon Bible says. The Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Letters, words make a difference. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look what it says in verse 2 The same. The Word, Jesus Christ, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He had no beginning. There's a lot of verses that speak of of his dwelling with the Father before creation. John 1, 2 is a perfect example of that. I want you to look at a couple different passages with me. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and this is talking about Melchizedek, which is very much a representation of Jesus Christ as our priest. Um, but Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3, we'll just kind of jump right into the middle of this because this is the part that, is, uh, that, is, um, uh, that pertains to our study tonight. Verse number 3. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continually. I mean, look at all those things. There's a lot of things that, that make it so that not, he's, he's, not, he's not created by God, he's not a son of God in the sense that there was a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, and he was birthed, which is what the Mormons say about that. He's without father, he's without mother, he's without descent, having neither beginning of days, which means he's all, if he was created, there was a day one, right? Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continually. Turn over to Micah chapter 5. We'll turn over to Micah 5, and then we're going to look at one more passage. But Micah 5, and this is a very familiar verse. We use this many, many times at Christmas, and I apologize for using this verse when it's not Christmas, but we're going to look at it. Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. That was a joke. We can use verses besides on Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter and everything else. But Micah 5 too. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah... He was talking about the city of Bethlehem, that that's where Jesus Christ was going to be born. Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruled in Israel, whose going forths have been from of old, from everlasting. What does everlasting mean? No beginning, no ending. If he was created by God, then he would have a beginning, and he would not be from Everlasting. He might be too everlasting, but he's not going to be from everlasting, and this verse clearly says that it would be. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. So what is this saying then? In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, the beginning of the creation of God, it's saying that he is the creator of all things. Turn over to one more passage, Colossians chapter 1. In other words, what this is saying is creation began with him. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Let me explain this. I think I I have an illustration that will help you understand. Think about any person that starts a business, all right? Um, He is the beginning of the creation of that business. Uh, It doesn't mean that that he was the first thing that that business formed. It means that he was the creator of the business, all right? Brother Matt, we we all know that Brother Matt, uh, he's not here tonight, but he started Worth Moving, right? He owns a moving company. Um, Brother Matt is the beginning of the creation of worth moving. Worth moving didn't create Brother Matt, did it? It doesn't mean that worth moving created him. It means the exact opposite. He created worth moving. And so if you look at that phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, means that creation began with Jesus Christ. The creation is God's creation, But that says two things. Number one, it says that Jesus Christ is God. And number two, he was the one that began the creation. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Very easily Understood, then, that it's not saying that Jesus Christ was created by God. It's saying, in that passage, the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, Jesus Christ was the one who created everything. Well, doesn't the Bible say in the beginning God created heaven and earth? Absolutely. And that means that Jesus is God. So, far from being able to say that, well, Jesus Christ is a created being, far from that. This is actually strengthening the argument and the idea that Jesus Christ is God, that he was there in the beginning with God when creation was formed and that everything in creation began with him. So, go back to Revelation 3. How does this fit in with the rest of the phrases that we just looked at or with an introduction to this church? I think it makes more sense when we consider that this church had special temptations to worship uh, divine um, or, or I should say inferior divinities, because they're not all gods that they were worshiping. They had the tendency to worship angels. They had the tendency to worship other things, and so Colossi had the same issues. We talked about that, but this church was exposed to the risk of uh, angel worship, exposed to the risk of worshiping lower powers, created, uh, created mediators. And this verse in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14 is trying to say very plainly, this is not some other created being. This is not some other inferior you know, divinity. This is not angels we're talking about here. This is God himself that is giving you this message. He's the origin of the creation of God. In other words, he is the all-controlling one. So, he, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God stands before this wretched church and penetrates deep into the heart of this church. And he sees through all the little disguises of this church through and through. And so the letter to the church at Laodicea begins. And basically what he's saying is don't try to cover the fact up. What I'm going to tell you cannot be hidden. What I'm going to tell you is going to be exposed. What I'm going to tell you is something that you better See, make note of, and repent. So we're going to look next week into this harsh criticism that the Lord has for this church, the condemnation that comes along with it. Uh, And what a harsh criticism it was. I pray that, that as a church, we never have to stand before God with the guilt that the church at Laodicea had to stand before God with. But we'll look at that next week. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the time that we can spend together around your word. God, what a blessing it is. I pray for those that are away tonight. We have quite a few that, that are normally here that are not, God. And so I know some are out of town on vacation. Some are not feeling well. But you should bring everybody back here on Sunday. And that uh, as we go into our anniversary Sunday, that we, you just give us a great Sunday. We'd see people come in come in as visitors. We'd see people get saved. God, but above all, we want to be a church that is glorifying to you. We want you to be pleased with what you see. May we never have to stand before you in condemnation like the church at Laodicea did and like some of these other churches that we've already talked about. We want to be a church that's strong, not so we can say, look at us, look what we've done. We want to be a church that's strong so we can lift up Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that's strong for the glory of God. We want to be a church that's strong so that you might feel so comfortable in this place that you'll send people here, that your Holy Spirit will be here, that the power of God would be evident in everything that we do. And again, that above all, you'd be pleased with us as a church. That you'd send us away with your blessing tonight. Again, we thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.